Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for all episodes, you can go to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Ajay Kamat. Ajay was the founder of Wedding Party, an app that collects wedding photos from guests and provides updates on the wedding details. After Wedding Party was acquired by Instacart, Ajay became a partner at Pair VC, a premier Bay Area early stage fund who, whose managing partners were early investors in Dropbox, Lending Club, and Path. Some of their current portfolio companies include DoorDash, Memebox, and InstaRead. I'm really excited for this one. So without further ado, here's Ajay. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Mike, I really appreciate the opportunity. Great to chat. Thanks. Thank you. So I know that you started Wedding Party. If you wouldn't mind just taking me a little bit into your background and how you became a founder. You know, I was a founder for five years. It was quite the journey. And, you know, when I started, it it wasn't entirely clear to me. It wasn't obvious that I wanted to be a technology founder. Um, I actually studied bioengineering in college, um, and I, I had done some internships, you know, at biotech companies, and kind of realized that I didn't like that work um, as much as I liked the science. And so, I kind of just started dabbling with some ideas with my roommates, and found that that work, you know, studying markets and and building um, software, we didn't even actually launch anything, but just the like process of working with smart people and building software was really fun. And so it's just something that I, I started kind of pursuing slowly up until the point where, you know, I really decided, hey, like, I actually want to start something. I want to build something with a team. You know, in college, um, kind of we, we were working on some side projects and um, we were applying to early accelerators and working on a business plan competition. And, you know, I wasn't really even going to class. I was just kind of sitting in my apartment, like, you know, working uh, around the clock with my roommates and, it was just a really thrilling time. And I think I just got really addicted to that feeling. And that's kind of what led me down the journey of, of entrepreneurship. Love that story. And so what were some of the lessons learned from being a, being a founder of Wedding Party for five years? Uh, I know you also have a, had a successful exit, uh, if you can uh, talk about that as well, and uh, switching to the other side of the table as a venture capitalist. The, the the lessons are um, uh, you know infinite. <laughs> I think you know um, there there are good life lessons in in being an entrepreneur. Um, but just for some context, so you know we launched four or five different products um, with the same team, and the last one was Wedding Party. And the and the the four or five prior to to Wedding Party were all kind of not successful. Um, we built them, we launched them, you know, we got some customers, some users, but nothing that was like breakout growth or anything like that. Um, in the process, we actually just got better, right? Like I think in the beginning, we just weren't that great at building products. Like, you know, they weren't particularly well-designed or, or, or well-engineered. And over that process of a couple of years, we just got better and better up until the point when um, at wedding part, when we were about to launch wedding party, kind of all the stars were aligning. We knew exactly the customer that we were going after. We knew exactly the problem that we wanted to solve for them. We knew how we were going to get it to grow. At least we had a thesis on it. 
um, and we were building kind of at a really furious pace. And so when when it launched and it worked, it was like it seemed like it kind of just worked overnight. But it, it was just something that had taken us many years of trial and error and learning to get there. Yeah, I mean, I think some some key lessons are really make sure you have people working alongside you who are as committed to to building the company as you are. Um, you really want to get a very strong team because you know the second you you bring someone on board that isn't as as committed or isn't as skilled or talented, um, it really brings down the rest of the team. And the number one thing that I think is important in startups is speed. You really want to move as fast as you possibly can, and the pace that you you are moving is typically the pace that you can move is typically a lot more than you think it is. Um, and so the best founders that I've seen um, working as a VC um, are just moving at a breakneck pace and, and they're, they're, they're just getting stuff done every single day. And every time you meet with them, they've made a lot of forward momentum and progress. And, and that's just something that I think is very, very important to recognize. I really like what you said about really making sure you have, uh, as a founder, that the people on your team have to be very committed in terms of what you're actually building because of course it's long hours and of course it, it's a very very long process in terms of building a company yeah i think you know i'll add one thing i think grit is, is is such an important thing like i think it's easy to you know hire someone to help build the product that you're building but to have people you know four or five people in the early days who are just as committed to it um uh, and you're doing it as a team and everyone's kind of putting in all their effort into getting the company off the ground. I just think that that's a, at a minimum, that's the, the thing that's required to do it. And I'd imagine also trust as well. You know, I'd imagine that since you started, since you started Wedding Party and these, and these other products with uh, your roommates, I'd imagine that you already had established relations with them. They were, they were your friends. I've heard that, uh, that how do you view startups where maybe the co-founders actually, you know, didn't have a prior relationship with each other uh, they more came together to actually build the startup, but maybe didn't have, they might have not have known each other before, but they more look at how they have complementary skills. Actually, it's not true that um, my co-founders were my friends. One, 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 one was actually um, my, my girlfriend, um, which is a crazy kind of thing to do, but you know, um, we were dumb enough to do it. But the third co-founder that we brought on board was someone that we didn't know. And we got introduced to them through a mutual friend. And we kind of started testing the waters and started working together. And it ended up being like a really good partnership. And I think I think it's common, right? I think people, people don't necessarily know each other for many years before starting to work together. What I'm looking for at least is that they've vetted each other and they understand kind of the long-term commitment that they're making to each other. And I think that takes at a minimum some a few months to 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 really see that your working styles are, are going to work and you've talked about the future and what you want to build together. So, you know, if you haven't done that much, then I think it's a risky proposition. Talk to me about why you wanted to go onto the other side of the table, as they say, and switch to become a financier rather than a founder. Uh, first, I'll say like I didn't want to. It wasn't and it wasn't an easy decision at all. I had always thought and kind of continue to believe that builders and founders are kind of the best people. Um, they're really putting themselves out there. They're really putting in the real effort to build something from ground zero. Um, and I have so much respect for that. And I actually took pride in being a founder at the time. And so the idea of, of, of switching into venture capital was one that I myself was skeptical of. And um, I had a great opportunity. Um, and so I wanted to think about it very clearly. I, I talked to 
I don't know, 50 people about what their thoughts were. And it was split down the middle. Um, about 50% said, you're crazy, like you have to do this. And about 50% said, like, you're crazy, like, don't do it, you should stay and um, start another company and, and continue being a founder. And ultimately, uh, I went with my gut, it felt like a really good opportunity for me and the people that I was working with I'd already known um, for several years. But I'd say it was like a 51% for it, you know, 49% against it kind of decision. And I just kind of was leaning slightly that direction and went went for it. Got it. So so why Pear? Pear, you know, was was an investor in Wedding Party. And even before Pear started, um, Pageman was my first angel investor. Then when he and Mar got together and started Pear, they invested as well. And, and I'd been working with them. They were on our board. You know, I had lots of great investors in, in Wedding Party. You know, through the ups and downs, there was just something about the relationship that I had with Pear. They weren't the largest check, I don't believe. But, you know, they were the ones that I was texting um, and calling when when things were tough and I needed some guidance on kind of what I needed to do next. And I just felt that they were really there through the thick and thin. And so my relationship working with them was was so good. I had so much respect for what they were doing and the way they supported me that when Page One and Mar approached me about joining Pair, I knew I had to take it very seriously. At the pre-seed and seed stages, what types of qualities do you look for in founders and maybe things on their pitch decks that you focus on? You know, the the, the first thing that we're looking for is clarity of thought. Have they spent the time digging in and thinking about their industry, thinking about their customer and thinking about the way that they're going to solve it? Um, you, I, I think that one thing that, that, that is challenging is when a founder comes in and you know, we're able to kind of ask a bunch of questions and we're poking holes in their thinking and it's kind of clear that we may know more about the subject, about their company than they do. That's a big red flag for us. So we're looking for kind of a cohesive story. We're looking for why the founders are starting this company. You know, at our stage, we're thinking a lot about the people. Why are the the multiple founders working together? Um, Do they complement each other? And will we think, do we think this makes for a good founding team? And then obviously, very importantly, like, do we think there's a huge opportunity? Do we think they can build a very large company? And is their approach novel and do they have an interesting insight? So what are some of the difficulties when you're in the due diligence process and evaluating uh, B2C companies that maybe you don't have when evaluating B2B companies? You know, at our stage, um, the diligence between a B2B company and a consumer company isn't particularly different. And that's because um, there's little to no data at the stage when we're investing. So we're looking at other things. We're looking at the background of the founders a lot. Um, and we, we, we really think that's like one of the most important things for us. And then we're looking at the market opportunity and what else is out there and why the time is right now to build this company. And really kind of what does the world look like in five or 10 years if this company is successful? So, you know, we're not at the stage where we're looking at metrics, we're not necessarily looking at CAC to LTV, you know, we're, 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 we, but we do care about, hey, has the founder thought about how they're going to acquire users? Um, have they tried any experiments? What do they look like so far? So again, it goes back to that like depth of thinking and have they really spent the time assessing whether this business is worth pursuing for themselves? Of, of course, you're, you're really investing in the founder itself uh, since you obviously don't have a lot of data to go after. So 
in the so of course in the past few years the pre-seed and seed check sizes have have grown and grown and you know what maybe is considered a pre-seed or seed now a few years ago would have probably been considered a, a series a has this how has this influenced your decision making in terms of uh, writing checks and uh, investing in, in early stage the the check sizes have changed the rounds and the nomenclature around the rounds has changed maybe i'll, I'll share kind of how we think about it we think about Anything that's less than 750k to a million dollars invested is is what we consider kind of a pre-seed round. One million to to 3.5, maybe four on the high end is considered a seed round, and then you know beyond that, five to ten to fifteen million dollars raised as a as a Series A. You know, at, at our stage, it, it it remains the same. Like. And my company at Wedding Party, our first round was a million dollar round. You know, we called it a seed round at the time. Today we would call it a pre-seed round, but the company was at the same stage, meaning like we were just kind of getting our product off the ground. We had a small team, very little data, um, and people were betting on the team and and the market. So our decision making at the pre-seed and seed is really about the people, you know, and and kind of the the idea that they're going after. At the seed stage, we're looking for a little bit more data. Um, have they launched the product typically? Um, what are they seeing in terms of usage and customers? Is retention strong? And and you know, does the company? And then again, does the company have an opportunity to build kind of a, a big standalone company? And so, what are what are some of the reasons why a startup that goes through an accelerator isn't able to raise maybe a seed round or a Series A? Well, the Series A, you know, you really need to both have something, a product that people love and show that you have a growth engine to really get it to scale. So I think that's just a, this is a different stage. Um, a company going through an accelerator, I mean, I think the companies that come out of accelerators, they range in traction, right? Some kind of haven't launched um, and, and others um, have, are already scaling. But the things that, that prevent a company from raising money typically are Again, do they have a, a, a clear approach to their market? And and a lot of fa- a lot of investors think about market, right? Like, is there an opportunity to build a big public company here? If it's just kind of a, it seems like a small opportunity, and investors aren't always right, by the way, they may be reading the market wrong. But um, if they don't think that there's a huge opportunity, they typically won't invest. So that can be some of the things that are that are holding companies back. Other things are like if there isn't a full team, if you're mi- missing a critical piece like a CTO, um, or if you're raising the money to outsource your engineering, you know, that type of stuff kind of gives investors pause. How, I'd imagine one of the things that would be very difficult as an investor is uh, investing in companies that are going in, into maybe new spaces or new markets that, that haven't been established yet. So it's really hard to know what the TAM would be rather than seeing a current market. How do you think about those types of issues when evaluating companies? It's a good question. I think in both cases, you really want to frame the opportunity as relative to something else, right? So if you're going after a market that already exists, you're going to frame it against the incumbents and what they've done and why they're big companies, but where the opportunity lies and why they haven't innovated. And if you're going after a new market opportunity, it's about why the timing is now for this opportunity to come up. And, and typically that's that like new opportunities are typically built on precursor opportunities, right? So and so so I think that's that's a really important thing to consider. Does the does the founder understand why they're going after this new opportunity right now and why the timing is right right now? In discussing product market fit, 
when should a company have product market fit? Yeah, and you know, there's a lot written about product market fit and it's not necessarily an exact science. Let, let me answer it in terms of consumer companies. With product market fit, it's kind of one of those things where you you when you have it, you know it because consumer companies, there, there are so many consumers out there that when there's a pull for your product, um, you feel it very, very quickly, right? To give you a sense, like, you know, the, the, one of the products that we launched um, before Wedding Party, you know, we were thrilled that after kind of like six months of launch, you know, we got to 50,000 users and we we're like, wow, that's like a lot of people. And with Wedding Party, we launched it and people wanted it so much that within the first week, we had 5,000 couples sign up. The next week, it was 10, 20, 50,000 couples that had signed up within like a month, right? So, and it was all via word of mouth. We weren't doing anything. And so it was clear that what we had built and the landing pages that we had put up and the way that we were communicating the product was something that people really, really wanted. And I think if you're building a consumer company, it's important to try to find that I mean, if I were to start a consumer company, I would try to find that before I raise any money. Because the challenge is you can be heads down in a room iterating for, for months, maybe years before you get product market fit. And, and you really want to grow the team and scale the operation when you have that. Got it. No, thanks. That's, no, that's very insightful. Thank you. So what are, what are some of the major turnoffs or deal breakers from startups when they pitch their businesses to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we're, we're really looking for people who know kind of what they're getting into and know why they're building it. So one thing, again, like if they, if they don't have a clear command of the material, if, if, we, if we see founders kind of disagreeing with each other in the room, you know, about the, the strategy going forward, if, if people aren't kind of, if founders aren't very responsive and are, are not kind of following up with uh, on the questions that we have over email. Um, those are the types of things, you know, like dishonesty, stuff like that. But really, I mean, we're, we're, we're optimistic. We're really in the, in the business of, of, of being believers in people and ideas. And I think if you, if when founders come in and they've thought through their problem and they have a, they've built a, um, a solid, if small team, you know, we get really excited about it. So the Bay Area overall is extremely expensive to live in. And it's becoming very difficult for founders to found companies in the area. How do you think about founders start, that are starting companies that live outside the Bay Area and outside some of the main VC ecosystems? I think people are starting companies all over the place. There's no doubt about it. And we frequently have people visiting um, where, where they run their, their businesses. I'll say a couple things, though. Number one, there there is power in in being in Silicon Valley. Number one, because there's the biggest concentration of venture capitalists, so getting your company funded and um, is easier if you're kind of part of the network here and and um, know know the players. And the second thing is talent, right? So yes, it's expensive, and yes, it's difficult to find smart people um, who are willing to work for your startup. But it remains the the Silicon Valley remains like the highest concentration of people with experience, right? So like if you're building, you know, um, a social network, like you might want someone who's worked at kind of Facebook or Twitter before, and those companies are based here. And so um, like finding people who, who have the experience at every stage that your startup is going to face, you're more likely to find those people here. Um, so it's always, in my opinion, at least, good to have um, 
at least some of, of your operation and your network here in Silicon Valley. Wanted to talk to you flipping gears a little bit just about uh, marketing distribution channels. Online marketing distribution channels have are, are heavily concentrated between uh, Facebook and Google. And it's becoming increasingly more expensive to run ads with uh, increased competition. How do you think about CAC today, given the rising prices? Yeah, I mean, CAC has definitely started ballooning. I mean, there was a golden age three, four, five years ago where you could run your entire business up to, you know, 50, $100 million in revenue or more just on paid growth via Facebook and Instagram and things like that. Um, but that time is gone now because, um, as you said, there's, there's competition um, for, for different keywords and different ad spend and different targeting. Um, and so the price of acquisition has gone up. And the challenge is, if you just rely on paid acquisition for your growth, the amount that you're going to need to spend to get to a certain scale really starts getting huge. Um, and you know, you're going to need to raise more and more venture capital in order to do it. And I think that investors are starting to be, become weary of, you know, putting in large amounts of capital into companies that are, that are just spending it on paid acquisition. So I think CAC is, it's important that if you're building a consumer company, you think about CAC from the very beginning and how you're going to scale it. There's nothing wrong with using paid acquisition, um, as one channel for your growth but it shouldn't be the only channel. Um, ideally, you have um, something in your product that, that, um, that allows you to acquire users organically. And I, I encourage founders to think really deeply about the organic opportunities that they have. At Wedding Party, we didn't have any money. And so in order to grow in the early days, we had to figure out how to create a product that could go viral. Um, and so we spent months, actually eight months, designing like how we think it would go from one wedding to another wedding, what the invite mechanisms were going to be, who we wanted to target at various weddings to make sure that we could get that second or third order wedding. And we just spent a lot of time thinking about it and working on it. Companies today are, are doing things like building communities um, to get a bunch of people interested in the, in the area that they're building in. Um, and you, via those communities, they're able to grow their products. So I think that it's important to... And then once you have a community, if you want to spend on acquisition, it's great because um, you know the paid spend has an amplifying effect on the community and it has this like loop that you're creating um, a flywheel to get growth. And so I think that, that that's, that's the way that you have to do it today and kind of gone are the days where you can just spend on acquisition because you, as you grow, the, the CAC is going to go up um, and um, you know people seldom anticipate that. So how, how has this uh, impacted investor attitudes towards uh, D2C companies? Uh, how has this changed over the past few years? Yeah, I think, again, people are looking for demand for consume, from consumers for the thing that you're building. Um, and there's a big enough market of consumers that if you have something that people really, really want, they're going to find you, they're going to tell their friends about you, um, they're going to share it in their communities. Um, and so we're looking for, I think what investors are looking for is just more thought um, around how the company is going to grow. Um, and, and, and whereas before, maybe you had like one slide on how you were going to do acquisition. Nowadays, I recommend people um, spending a lot more of their time around how they're going to, and there may be a hundred million people that you can go after, but 
you really better have some deep thinking around how you're going to go about them and what the phases look like. What are, what are some of the trends within consumer that you're most excited about? or focus on? Yeah, I mean, um, I think there's a lot of fun stuff going on. You know, at Pair, we're not really thematic investors. So we don't just pick a vertical and kind of dive in deep. We're very much more people investors. I think that, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of two companies that, that I've been working with a lot in our audio-based companies. I have an audio fitness company that we work with. Um, as well as an audio entertainment company that we work with. And it's been really amazing to me because, you know, two or three years ago, pre-AirPods or when they weren't as popular, you know, it just wasn't as clear that audio would be a good mechanism to, to acquire users and provide value. But today, it's like people are on the go so much. Um, they're commuting a lot. And that the opportunity to, to get to consumers through audio is one that I think was really underlooked in the early days and has a big, big opportunity. My wife uses an audio fitness app uh, for all her workouts. Uh, so I totally understand there. So what's one company that you've either invested in or worked with that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, probably since I haven't been doing this too long, four years, which which maybe sounds long, but in venture capital world, it, it takes time for companies to, to grow. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about the oldest one, which was a company called Aptiv, which is on the on-demand audio fitness company, um, which we invested in when it was just one person, just, just the founder who was recording audio classes himself um, at the time and kind of distributing them to people who were paying 10 bucks a month to do the audio classes. Um, that company's gone on to, to grow a ton, raise over 50 or $60 million, um, has hundreds of thousands of paying subscribers. And being part of that journey from the very, very beginning when it really wasn't even a company um, into kind of a full-fledged operation that's that's grown and has impacted so many people's lives um, in terms of their fitness. It's just been a really privilege to be part of it. Yeah, it must be pretty amazing seeing the evolution of Aptiv since you invested at such an early stage and seeing what they're able to do now. If you had to pick one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies, what would it be? You know, I'd say I'd say hunker down. You know, it's a it's it's very very challenging, but the opportunities are there. So when you find it, hang on for dear life life because it's a roller coaster. But from my perspective, it's really important to um, it, with consumer companies. I, I think an idea is not enough. It's the full equation of what is your offering, how do you acquire the customer, what is the offering, how often are they using it, is this something that's important for them. Are they sharing it with other consumers like them? And does it make an impact on, on their lives? And I think that if you can get that whole equation to work, then you, can ha you have the chance of building a big consumer company. But sometimes we see founders come in with just an idea that sounds interesting. But you know, consumer companies are really easy to test. Like, like I said, with the founder of Aptiv, he was recording the audio classes himself and selling them. Um, and he knew that people really, really loved it. And so I would just find that nugget of, of demand from your consumers early. And when you do that, you can kind of double down and spend a lot of effort, build the team and raise money from there. Well, Ajay, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate all the insights that you shared. My pleasure, Mike. It was great chatting with you. And there you have it. It was so much fun chatting with Ajay. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. If you want to keep up with Ajay, you can catch him on Twitter at AjayCam. That's A-J-A-Y-K-A-M. It will also be in the show notes and the website. 
If you enjoyed the episode, which since you're still listening, I really hope you have, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. For all episodes, check out theconsumervc.com. And if you want to follow along behind the scenes, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. All episodes moving forward will be released on Mondays and Thursdays each week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, folks.